All right, so uh, we're looking at gender today, gender ideology. Um, so we're going to have two sessions on this. So I called the second kind of part of this theological anthropology really just because you can't resolve the gender question without looking at the anthropology question. Um, but actually I'm going to blend all those issues together in this lecture and the next lecture. Um, now before we, in a sense, think of anything, how many of you think you are already familiar with the terminology used by the secular world? How much time do we need to actually spend clarifying terminology? It seems to change rather frequently, so it might be helpful. Okay, know, okay, so... What they say this week. Okay, we'll go through it. <laughs> so we have the term sex, um, which is um, male, female. Now, often when people explain what that means, they'll say it's biological. Yeah? So it's a matter of what's in your bio body. Um, but um, I was noticing reading the, the literature, Planned Parenthood, um, which I thought would be a good definitive source for what kind of the enemy is saying. Um, <laughs> they don't like the term biological sex. They prefer assigned sex. So that somebody else has decided at birth that you are a boy, yes? Um, and they want to kind of remove the word biological because they just don't want to go there, really. Because the instant you do start going there, they're ending up in our position, really. Contrasted with that is gender. That would be classically man-woman, that would be a matter of identity. Identity. Um, you know, how you identify. What roles I feel I perform. How I express myself, how I dress. Um, so lo lots of the literature would talk about self-identifying making it clear that who is the one doing the identification. Um, it's you. No one else should be saying how you identify. Um, so this isn't rooted in biology. This is for a person to gradually, as they grow, decide. Um, Assigned, that would be fixed. You know, somebody assigns at birth, that can't be changed. Um, how you identify, though, they would say, is fluid. That at different times in life, people might feel differently, identify differently. And just because a five-year-old boy identifies as a boy doesn't mean once he's 12, he identifies as something else. So that would be fluid. Um, and what's fairly obvious, you know, we've got our Catholic eyes on here and we're thinking philosophically, is that there's a, a huge dualism here. That we've separated the mind or spirit 
from the body. Now it's the other way around. Separated the body from the mind or spirit um, or soul. And so if we were thinking, you know, where's the origin of all this? Uh, well, for modern dualism, we'd be taking it back to Descartes. Um, that once you go down that rabbit hole of just looking in the mind, um, then you've lost the connection. Rea you know, our thinking is no longer grounded in reality. Why should our gender be grounded in reality? Is that sounding familiar, what we're hearing in the news? So basically I've got three pages there. I'm not going to read through them in detail, but I've taken all those quotations from Planned Parenthood. So we've got, in a sense, straight from the horse's mouth. Um, what do I want to add there? Um, big phrase here, social construct. So you're reading from... And Carter Griffin uh, briefly commented on this. So feminism back in the 70s began this deconstruction, which is also a kind of bit of Marxist terminology that all the, the roles that in classical thinking a man and a woman are were deconstructed. Um, the notion being that the way you say a woman should behave is just a mere social construct. It's not grounded in anything in reality. It's just you imposing that on her. And so the notion is that all these things that people say about gender are just social constructs that are imposed on people. And people should be free to identify how they want to identify. Okay, let's just glance over the page two. Um, heard the phrase cisgender. So cisgender means you're those terrible people who are normal, um, where your biological assigned sex actually matches up with how you feel and identify. Um, so cisgender, we've got to have a word for those people. Um, transgender or trans is people who feel that their assigned gender doesn't match with how they identify. And you don't need to do too much sociological analysis to think that a world where increasing numbers of boys and girls grow up without a father at home, or grow up without their own father at home, that is it surprising that there should be a moment in history when people are confused about identity? The non-binary. So non-binary is an umbrella term for people whose gender identity is neither solely male nor solely female. Now that's interesting because 
Planned Parenthood, no, that's a different source, has suddenly used the word male and female about identity, which I think we kind of aren't supposed to do anymore. That's supposed to be man, woman. But some people don't think they're man, woman. They think they're something else. Um, that it's not as simple a world as black and white as man, woman. Um, so I've listed there a couple of the genders Facebook has now. So the claim would be gender, or one claim I read was gender is a spectrum, it's not binary. I don't think you need to push that too far to imagine that even spectrum implies two points, doesn't it? So that's not going to last for very long. Um, so 2014, Facebook put up 71 genders you can choose from on your Facebook profile for how you wish to identify. Um, I don't actually know what FTM means, um, but I just plucked a couple of them out there. Gender fluid, gender non-conforming, gender questioning, gender variant, gender queer. Um, a long, long list. <coughs> Then I put a, a quote there from a, a newspaper source. A recent study of teenagers in Minnesota found that 2.7% identify as transgender, gender queer, or gender fluid, or are unsure of their gender identification. That's a big percentage, isn't it? Um, so even if we imagine that might be an exaggeration, or we say those Minnesota people are weird, um, <laughs> this is a trend and I guess we've all got younger siblings or relations in schools to know this is being pushed in the schools and that means children growing up are going to get confused if you tell a little child you have to decide are you a boy or a girl um, on the pronoun the personal pronouns yes we have fishy days I was going to come on to that, yes. So the people who don't want to be non-binary, who say, you know, I'm not a man, I'm not a woman, I'm what I am, some will say the pronoun you should use is they. So even though you're referring to someone who is singular, you use the pronoun they. So it doesn't become, you haven't put them in a box. And you can imagine this just causes other confusions. Because are you talking about one person or a group? Because um, we have pronouns for a reason. Um, it, it simplifies speech. You know, it's like the, the gender invasion stuff in our liturgy, where you'll get some prayers that will never refer to God as he. And so always have to use the word God, 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 God. And it just feels clumsy linguistically. Pronouns are how we speak. It makes our language more natural. But because they don't want to be pigeonholed, put in a box, I'm not he, I'm not she, they. Even though it's a singular. Related with that misgendering, 
So this is to refer to somebody, especially a transgender person, using a word, especially a pronoun or form of address, that does not correctly identify the gender with which they identify. For example, you refer to Caitlyn Jenner as he said, because he was born in a male body, even though she self-identifies as a woman. So this is, you know, the kind of original sin of, of gender identity issues, to impose the wrong gender on somebody. So my last seminary, um, a guy who, who left, um, almost as soon as he left, outed himself as non-binary. So um, there are, you know, anyway, there are people, a lot of people out there that have these confusions. Page three, I want to, just in terms of clarifying our terms here, um, so there's a, a different thing, intersex. So intersex or hermaphrodite um, is when someone in their body isn't clearly male or female. So, you know, there are many things in... Um, the development of the body in the womb and later that come out not normal, um, that's a deformity of some kind, that can include the sexual organs. So there are people who are born who will have both male and female organs. People that will be born that will have only partial organs. Um, now particularly, say, someone who's got both would be a kind of is that a man or a woman? So they would be intersex. So part of the literature arguing for gender identity issues will point to intersex conditions and say, you old-fashioned people think that the world's black and white, that it's male or female, but look, here are all these people that are neither that, neither one nor the other, that it's, it's much more nuanced than that. But actually, that whole argument is actually rooting it in the body. So it's actually claiming it isn't just a matter of what you think and feel, that it's an issue in the body. So they've kind of, even though they don't admit it or see it, they've actually conceded our position already. Um, so in the body, just to be aware, um, the chromosomes, um, so it's not just um, male being XY and XX. Um, so there are some, um, yeah, so there are some male bodies that have XXY, and there are some female bodies um, that have a single X, um, genetically. So it's not simple enough to be able to say man, woman, male, female is about chromosomes. Um, 
And sometimes these things um, are apparent in a baby, but as Planned Parenthood point out, um, sometimes these things only become apparent later in life. So during puberty when certain changes would normally happen, they don't happen or things develop in a way that wasn't expected. Um, but there's a lot of speculation with statistics about how common that is. Um, Planned Parenthood claim 1-2% to of people in the US. Um, I don't know how they're defining intersex. I suspect they're using a rather broad definition there. Um, okay, bottom of page three, I've put here a clarifying example. Father James has a male body. This is, was his assigned sex at birth. Father James identifies as Chevy Cruz. This is how he feels, how he expresses himself, how he dresses. I always wear license plates. I have a flashing neon light. Um, it does, how I express myself. And who are you to say otherwise? I feel that car expresses what I'm like. and I use the personal pronoun room. Um, so gender isn't binary, uh, it's a matter of identity. So the instant you've got 71 genders, there's no reason you can't make your gender, because this word gender has become co-opted to be identity. And you can make your identity whatever you want. That's obviously the direction we're heading in. Okay, over the page, just briefly to throw in the somewhat confusing other aspect of sexual orientation. Um, so sexual orientation means the genders you're attracted to. It's separate from our own gender identity. As YouTuber Brendan Jordan describes it, Sexuality is who you go to bed with. Gender identity is who you go to bed as. So you might have a body such that you have, go to bed and have sex with women, but you also identify as a woman. So are you a lesbian? You know, this all gets very confusing. Um, and so there have been, you know, online spats between, um, not footnoted it, but I remember it happening, between transgender people complaining about feminists who didn't find them attractive. Um, so a man self-identifies as a woman and then wants a woman who is lesbian to find him attractive. Because you're a lesbian, you say you're attracted to women, I say I'm a woman, yeah? So, so, so the feminist and the transgender issues that at one stage seem to be in alliance against the awful patriarchal old establishment uh, are increasingly battling it out. Uh, and it's, as I guess we all know, it's women who are losing out to lots of things. So in athletics, the most prominent example where 
A man who identifies as a woman can then compete in women's Olympics, and because he's got a male body, he will win. Um, and so it's the women that lose out. So, you know, the feminists complained decades past that there were men in the jobs they should have. And that's exactly what's now happening in athletics, that, that men are taking their winning positions in athletics. So feminism and transgenderism are now in collision. Uh, sexuality. I ju just briefly to note, this is a term less precise and more varied in its usage. So sometimes it will get used as referring to sexual orientation, i.e. sexual attraction. But sometimes it's used to refer to sexual issues that I think we probably call identity and gender. So sexuality is a less precise term, but it's also another of these terms somewhere out there in the mix. And just before we start thinking theologically, sex change surgery. Uh, I say, we'll consider this in more detail in our medical ethics course, so after Christmas, but in brief, transgender persons sometimes wish to change their body to make it conform to how they self-identify. For example, someone with a male body but who identifies as a woman will seek to change her body to make it like a woman's body. So to change the genitals so that they're not visibly male, to have breast implants to, to look female. Now I note sex change surgery is a misnomer, a lie. That the surgery doesn't actually change the body to that of the other sex. It merely changes some characteristics. So the XX or XY chromosomes that run through every cell of the body, they can't be changed. So you haven't really changed the man to a woman. Um, the whole and healthy sex organs are removed. Well, that's what we'd call mutilation. Something's healthy and functioning and you've just taken it away. And fake or transplanted organs are added. For example, female breast implants. And usually to make that all be sustained, artificial hormones are required to maintain that as an ongoing entity. So it, it can't kind of sustain itself because the organs aren't there to pump the hormones in. Um, so that there's, it's just not true to say someone has changed sex, that this is now a man or a woman as opposed to what it was before. You've just got some alterations you've done to the body and it might look, you know, sometimes you'll see these people on TV shows, um, and sometimes it's, it's very convincing that you, you, it does look like a woman there. Um, and I remember seeing on YouTube a woman in stages as she'd been taking testosterone supplements. It was amazing to see the transformation even of her face because you know, the female face will have less muscular tissue and more kind of gentle fat tissue and just the testosterone changing her face so that actually she did look quite masculine at the end, even before any question of facial hair. And somehow the way she held her body, the testosterone changed her in that as well. But it's not making a, a whole man at the end of it. It's take, making some 
tragic mutilation. So as I say, we'll look at this more explicitly as a medical issue, ethical ethics issue after Christmas. But basically this is, quoting the Catechism, a matter of mutilation. Except for performed for strictly therapeutic medical reasons, directly intended amputations, mutilations, and sterilizations performed on innocent persons are against the moral law. Do we feel that's enough of an introduction in terms of... Now, I'm hoping when you go back home, there's none of this nonsense over there, but um, the West is polluting the rest of the world, and so this stuff is going to be following you home. Any comments? Uh, I'm just wondering if, if, if the, the chromosomes cannot be changed, I wonder how these implanted hormones make their way into the body to begin effecting changes like to, to facials, appearance, and other organs. Because I know that in a way, kind of. Work hand in hand with the, with the genetics. Yeah, with the genetic makeup. Either it means they kill the, the original chromosomes or. Or maybe override them in terms of effect. So, gen the science of genetics is a big thing in itself. Um, I remember when I was doing my doctorate, I was surprised reading a lot of genetic analysis. A kind of older view of genetics thought that the genes programmed everything, whereas actually modern theory would tend to think of a more holistic thing somehow makes the person and the body, and genes are a part of it, but not the whole. So when I was looking at it in terms of the embryo, actually even before the gene genetic code is formed in the fertilized egg, it has become a unity and is developing and working as a unity, even before the genes have formed. Um, then conversely, you have some adults who have different genetic code in different parts of their body, which they speculate would be, um, so you know in, in the womb, um, when it, twins form, that the cells divide and you get two identical twins formed from an original single same genetic thing. Sometimes it seems that happens in reverse as a kind of deformity in the development progress process. And two dis genetically distinct non-identical twins will somehow merge together. And then you en end up sometimes with an utterly healthy development of an adult, but that then has kind of different genes in different parts of their body. Uh, and from what I've read, the way that has been manifested is actually in criminal investigations with DNA testing, where the DNA results from different parts of a person's body have given different results. Anyway, why am I saying that? What that indicates is that genetics isn't the only thing that makes you what you are. It's somehow a more complex, unified thing which actually from a Catholic perspective we'd be kind of happy with. We'd say that there's this unifying thing, the soul, not just the genes are what unify and make a person what you are. 
Any other thoughts, comments? You're familiar enough with us for this first to now look at some theology in terms of trying to make sense of where we're going with this. Um, I'm just trying to keep track of the time. So we're ending at five, 9.45, yes? Mm-hmm. Okay. And you've all read enough of Carter Griffin for us to discuss this for 20 minutes or so. Um, so I want to... I've got 18 pages of notes here. Um, I'm going to do a bit today, a bit on next session. Um, this is not going to be, in two lectures, a complete solution to the gender identity issue. Um, but I'm trying to map out what I think would be the broad principles. Um, so, page five. So, I've said building a counter-analysis. This is basically what we need to do. We need to somehow... What are we going to build that's going to view this all differently, coherently? So, I say basically two pivotal points. First, A that gender and sex are actually a unity, because the person is a unity, a unity of body and soul. So kind of anything else we're looking at, that's got to be a pivotal thing we're understanding and articulating and presenting in a way that makes sense to others, that you're a unity. And B, that gender and sexuality aren't just a matter of social construct, as this phrase is. That conversely, masculinity and femininity are at the core of our being. That they're neither merely imposed by society, nor a matter of free choice. That actually these two things actually define what a person is. The male and female difference and the masculinity-femininity that accompany it Why do they exist? Well, I've said here, um, they exist because of sexual reproduction to further the species, that these have a function beyond you, beyond what you choose and identify. So St. Augustine argued uh, that God established the two sexes to be the means of propagating new members of the city of God. Now, evolutionary science, as Griffin picks up, argues that male female exist for the sake of not yet yeah, a propagation. Um, so interestingly, modern science is backing what Augustine was saying um, sixteen hundred years ago. Now it would follow that therefore masculinity and femininity aren't mere social constructs, but are part of the division of the sexes built into our human nature. And that would hold whether you either follow theology, I see this as part of nature's God, or follow evolutionary science, I see this as the working of nature. In both cases, there is a nature that defines us, a nature that you do not choose, a nature that includes a predetermined sex and gender. Now, depending on how much time we end up with, there are other theological speculations. You know, why did, did God make a world where there's male and female? Um, well, I think the, the propagation of the species that Augustine points to is kind of very obvious. 
as a thing in the mind of God. But there are other theological speculations, um, including, as I've said there, in addition to enabling... Oh, sorry, that's not asexual. That should be sexual reproduction, because that's the whole contrast. Um, the male-female distinction exists to reflect the image of God in humanity by relationality. So briefly I'll note that would basically be John Paul II's analysis. Another analysis would say to enable the incarnation. And that would be Edward Holloway's uh, synthesis. Um, so these are theological speculations saying that male-female isn't just random, it's something in the mind of God, in his plan for a reason. Okay, so, um, page six. So basically I've got a whole page here on the unity of the body and soul uh, in contrast to dualism. So, just reading through the page. The core of gender ideology is the separation of gender identity from biological sex, gender identity from bodily identity. This is rooted in a usually unacknowledged dualism of body and soul, of mind and body. Um, and you, know, you remember dualism is both ancient and modern, so Plato wanted to escape, wanted the soul to escape the prison of the body. Yeah, so it's not just a new thing, dualism. Whereas Descartes' epistemology envisaged the mind as the ghost in the machine, um, and pretty much modernity ever since Descartes has had this dualism. So in contrast, an anthropology uniting body and soul is held by Orthodox Christians, but not exclusively. You know, there are others that aren't Christian. So Aristotle, for example, held to a unified body-soul vision of the human person. For example, for Aristotle, it was difficult to see how the soul could survive death, given that the body was gone. I know philosophy was a long time ago, but do you remember Aristotle? Um, so he dwells on this thing quite a lot. So for him, the body and soul are such a unity that he has difficulty in believing in life after the body dies. Now, I say here, the church embraced Aristotle's hylomorphism, um, i.e. matter, form, body, soul, and how it speaks of the body and the soul. So, quoting Catechism, the unity of soul and body is so profound that one has to consider the soul to be the form of the body, as the Council of Vienna put it. I.e., it is because of its spiritual soul that the body made of matter becomes a living human body, spirit and matter. In man are not two natures united, spirit and matter, but rather their union forms a single nature. Quoting from another part of the Catechism from Gaudium et Spes, man, though made of body and soul, is a unity. Uh, can I just make the point in terms of using Aristotle here? So, uh, I may have articulated this already in this course, but the church uses philosophy, um, but what she holds is a matter of faith.
And so we can use, and the church has chosen to use, the language of Aristotle. But that doesn't mean you have to be an Aristotelian to be orthodox. Um, so the church down the centuries will sometimes condemn certain philosophical positions as incompatible with the faith. But the truth of reality is always going to be broader than a single philosophical articulation. So in faith and doctrine, we use philosophical terms, as the church has clearly done with Aristotle and the body and soul. But we need to be aware that we're using his terminology, but it's our position we're articulating, not his. Okay, continuing with my notes here. The soul is distinct from the body, but the church teaches that this distinction does not introduce a duality into the soul. The soul is that by which the human person is most especially in God's image, the soul, God's image, but the human body shares in the dignity of the image of God. It is a human body precisely because it is animated by a spiritual soul, and it is the whole person that it is intended to become in the body of Christ, the temple of the Spirit. St. Thomas thus teaches, the rational soul is the substantial form of the human body. And note also that soul is identified with life rather than just with mind. Thus it relates to the whole body, not just to some part. So it's not that the soul relates to my brain, but not to my body. The soul relates to my whole body, to life. Um, and that's significant in terms of the unity of the, the composite, the single nature that makes up body and soul. So a unity, a composite, to use the term of the catechism. The soul needs the body for knowledge and its specific intellectual operations. So you cannot think without all that knowledge that comes to you through the senses of the body. And conversely, the body needs the soul for life, and it ceases to be a living body without it. It just becomes a, a corpse. A corpse is not a body. So it's only a body as long as it's got a soul giving it life. Just finally, um, kind of summarising John Paul II's perspective, that the body expresses and discloses the soul. Um, so when we look at his nuptial spousal meaning of the body. Um, that's another way of thinking of the unity of body and soul is the body expressing the soul. And the final little note at the bottom of the page there, I say, when the body and soul are separated, the soul or mind dominates the body and manipulates it. And cutting it to pieces in this exchange operation is a pretty clear example of manipulating the body. Whereas when the body and soul are held in unity, then the body is treated as a mystery and respected. Does that page help clarify in a sense the basic issue there? Any 
thoughts, comments? Okay, page seven. So thinking about the image of God. So what are kind of our theological principles building a counter around? One is unity of body and soul. Two, the image of God. So Genesis said male and female, he created them. So touching on what we looked at just recently in terms of sex and the uh, teaching in the Bible, man exists as sexually differentiated by reason of the creator's plan. So I noted just last lecture that not all animals are sexually differentiated, but humans are sexually differentiated. And that, um, as William May put it, through their sexuality, men and women image God in the world. That it's male and female humans who the Bible says are in the image of God. So that with respect to differentiation and complementation, Charity. Um, again, quoting Carl Peschke that I quoted before, saying that human heterosexuality is the work of the Creator. The solitude of Adam, his difference from Eve, reveals that the person in his body is a being that carries within himself a profound need of living with others in relationship. Jacob, can you read that quotation from the Catechism that little block? Man and woman have been created, which is to say willed by God, on the one hand in perfect equality as human persons, on the other in their respective beings as man and woman. Being man or being woman is a reality which is good and willed by God. In their being man and being woman, they reflect the Creator's wisdom and goodness. Man and woman made for each other, complementary as masculine and feminine. Now, um, just to reiterate, clarify the point, sometimes people say, oh, well, you've just kind of projected all that onto God. That's your idea of God. Um, so that you've made God out to be a man. Um, so... More technically, it is in the reverse. The human person is in God's image. Male and female together image God together in their maleness and femaleness. But God is not in man's image or in woman's image. According to the Catechism, there's no way, in no way is God in man's image. He is neither man nor woman. He is pure spirit in which there's no place for the difference of the sexes the respective perfections of man and woman reflect something of the infinite perfection of God. Those of a mother and those of a father and husband. Okay, I'm going to go through the next page, page 8, continuing this image thing, and then we're going to look at the Carter Griffin book. So, title of this page, Made in His Image, Made for Relationship. And I say this is kind of a background, but an important background issue in this context of gender ideology. 
So I start noting that there's an, an inherent individualism in gender ideology. We don't let society create us in social constructs. We don't let others define us. We don't let biology define us. We create ourselves. It's about me. I decide what I am. And it's not how I relate to others and how they relate to me. It's what I want to make my identity. Now in contrast, being made in the image of God is inherently re relational, not individualistic. That the Trinity is a communion of persons. And if you remember your Trinitarian theology, the persons of the Trinity are defined by their relationships. So the Father is the person of the Father by his relationship, the Son as the Son, and so forth. St. Thomas teaches the human person's image of God is not just a matter of essence, um, not just a matter of possessing intellect and will, but rather possessing intellect and will is something that enables the human person to know and love God, i.e. be in relationship with him. And so he says, first and chiefly, the image of the Trinity is found in the acts, in knowing and loving in relationship. So let me just verbally say that a bit more slowly. So there's a way of thinking of the image of God, of thinking of it as just kind of like a, a stamp or a seal on you, and that that's the image of God in you. But what St. Thomas is saying is actually the, the real image of God in you is the actions you're able to do because of what you are of your nature, that you, with intellect and will, are capable of knowing and loving him. And that act is the primary place where the image of God is in you. Not just as a kind of static thing. That's not the primary sense of the image of God in you. Though it is, the fact you have an intellect and will, but more foundational is the fact that enables these actions, these relationships that are in God himself and the Trinity, knowing and loving in all eternity. So you, in your knowing and loving, are imaging God. Okay, then say, John Paul II develops this teaching with respect to sexuality. So Thomas says that, but he's not talking about male and female in this context. John Paul II is. By the communion of, it is by the communion of persons that man becomes to the image of God. Uh, Daniel, can you read? Sure. We can then deduce that man became the image and likeness of God, not only through his own humanity, but also through the communion of persons, which man and woman form right from the beginning. The function of the image is to reflect the one who is the model, to reproduce its own prototype. Man becomes the image of God not so much in the moment of solitude as in the moment of communion. Right from the beginning, that unity which is realized through the body indicates not only the body, 
but also the incarnate communion of persons, communio personarum, and calls for this communion. And masculinity and femininity express the dual aspect of man's somatic constitution. So what I've tried to do there is get a single quote from John Paul II articulating this thing. Um, but but the, he's saying this image and likeness is in relationship and actually where do we see this most in humans structurally actually in the man-woman relationship and that that is imaging God. So therefore far from those things being social construct, being mere imposition. This is our very identity as human beings made in the image of God. Okay, so in summary, back to my notes here. The human person is therefore inherently relational. The human person is defined by his capacity to relate to others. And the human person doesn't choose to create his relationality, it comes with his nature. Very briefly, I know at the bottom of the page that this thought of image of God has been a big thing in 20th century theology. So there is so small theology, the revival of St. Thomas's theology in Thomistic circles, Vatican II, Gaudium et Spes, lots of written commenting there on the image of God. Uh, and in JP2's theology of the body. So probably a hundred years ago, you wouldn't find as much written about the image of God as has been in the last 20th century. Does that give a different or an additional angle for what we're bringing to a counter-analysis gender ideology. Okay, so are we okay to actually together look at the Carter Griffin text? So, um, what did...